When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My name is Jennifer Frey, and I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. And I'm also the host of a podcast called Sacred and Profane Love. I think when it comes to the meaning of life question, one problem that you have is a failure to recognize that it is a very contemporary concern. So if you look back at what I'll just call classical philosophy, ancient, medieval, and and even early modern, um, there really is not a concern with the meaning of life. Meaning of life talk tends to pick up steam sort of in the late 19th century, and then it really gets going after the First World War. You know, maybe not surprisingly, because Europe's a mess and in an existential crisis. And I just think a lot of people are wondering What's it all for? But I also think that meaning of life discourse is caught up with death of God discourse, right? So it used to be the case that most human beings, even in really pre-literate cultures where the vast majority of people were not literate, they were still educated in the sense that they were given and internalized a story, right? A narrative about that that was sort of cosmic in scope. Um, And they could construct their own life story in relation to that broader narrative. Now, those narratives are coming from some kind of sacred textual tradition, you know? So for us, it it would be the Bible. And I think once that was kind of being called into doubt, that grand narrative is being called into doubt, then this kind of existential meaning of life stuff really takes root and really kind of flourishes on the continent and varieties of existentialist philosophy. What you find in the classical tradition is concern for the purpose of life. Right. So Aristotle famously in book one of the Nicomachean Ethics says, well, if we're going to do ethics, if we're going to talk about what it is to be good or live well, and we think that's a kind of science, we think you can have knowledge about that, then um, we have to recognize that it's a practical science, that its goal isn't just to know, but actually to be good or live well. And you have to know what the target is. Right. 
And so you have to know what the goal is, literally the telos, the goal, the purpose of your life. And then you can direct all of your effort towards hitting that target. So there is a kind of teleological account of human nature that runs from you know, the ancient pagan philosophers all the way up until the early modern period. And what happens there is the advent of modern science and a deep skepticism about teleology and nature. And once you get rid of teleology and nature, you get rid of purposiveness in nature. And that kind of undercut an entire way of thinking about human life and what makes for a good human life. And you see a shift there in ethical thought, not towards meaningfulness, but towards obligation and duty, right? So it's no longer about human fulfillment and virtue or eudaimonia or human flourishing. It's no longer about hitting the goal, but it's just about um, meeting the demands of something that ends up being called morality. But I think the question about eudaimonia, the question about the purpose of your life is best understood in contemporary discourse as related to the meaning of life question. And so I think something that I try to do in my own work and that some of my neo-Aristotelian friends try to do in their work is to connect contemporary meaning of life discourse with good old fashioned eudaimonia discourse. And um, and when we do that, what happens is you have to call into question not just what we mean by meaning of life, but also what we mean by happiness, right? Because again, once teleology gets evacuated out of the picture, what's left of happiness or what we used to call eudaimonia it just becomes subjective well-being. It just becomes feeling good, right? And now feeling good can get parsed in a bunch of different ways. It could just be pleasure. It could just be positive emotional affect. It could be like a combination of things, but it's entirely subjective. Like at the end of the day, it's just about whether or not you have a positive psychological condition. And the way that the world is doesn't really matter, right? It only matters insofar as it bears on your positive psychological condition. That sort of thing is totally divorced from questions of meaning, right? But if we go back to the classical tradition, I think we find a way of bringing happiness discourse and meaningness discourse back together. But you got to embrace teleology, which I think we should do. Why is meaning and happiness not the same thing? And, you know, is virtue related to meaning in your view? Yes, the answer is yes. Virtue is is really essential. So just to define terms, you know, when I talk about virtues, I'm talking about stable dispositions, right? So a kind of existential readiness, you know, to think and feel and act according to characteristic patterns, right? So you might tell the truth and that's an honest act, but one honest act does not make you an honest man. So if I say Zach is an honest man, that means that I'm saying Zach's the kind of guy you can count on to tell the truth, 
right? So I'm saying that you are disposed, even when you're doing nothing, right? You're disposed to tell me the truth, which means I can trust you. So I'm saying something about your character. I'm saying something about the kind of person that you are um, in a general way. And I think that virtue is absolutely essential to human flourishing, to a good human life. And I think we've really lost the concept of virtue or the concept of virtue has also become shopworn or degraded. And this is a huge problem for us as people, as a society. And we really need to try to recover the concept of virtue for people because I, I personally don't think that there's any way to flourish without the virtues, right? Without justice and courage and honesty and practical wisdom, the whole gamut. So if you're familiar with Alistair McIntyre, probably it's After Virtue, where he argues that when we think about human action, we have to think about it in terms of human life. And human life has a kind of narrative unity to it, right? That we we don't just live in a series of moments right, that we necessarily as human beings try to construct a meaningful narrative out of our lives and that this is very important to understanding human action and to understanding human action explanation. And I think that's true and correct. And when, and another thing that McIntyre points out that I think is really key is that we don't just write our own story in a vacuum. Like we're thrown into a story. We're thrown into a history. We're thrown into a tradition, right? We're born into a narrative that we did not ourselves write. And we have to try to make sense of our own life in relation to these other narratives. And, you know, McIntyre also points out that the human being is a storytelling animal, Like, this is a fact about us. We tell stories about ourselves, about other people, and it is basic to a human education that we internalize some of these stories. And that becomes a deep part of our moral imagination. And our moral imagination is hugely important in our practical deliberation, right? If you ask me, what are you doing in 10 years, right? That's an imaginative enterprise that I have to enter into. Um, And so I think that when we think about the difference between the good stories and the bad stories, right? Um, We are thinking about something kind of like what Iris Murdoch says when she distinguishes fantasy and, and, um, and imagination, fantasy being bad, imagination being good, that the stories that tell us something true about the human form, right? Are the stories that really matter? Are the stories that help us um, understand ourselves and live better? And those are almost always stories about what is good and bad in human life, really, and what sorts of virtues and vices either help or destroy us. And I think that 
if we start to see those connections, then we can start to see how virtue and meaning are just as connected as virtue and human flourishing. Because, I mean, let's face it, there is no human flourishing if you cannot make sense of your own life. I mean, there's just no way. We are like a meaning-seeking animal. We want to make sense of stuff. And most especially, we want to make sense of our own lives. Making Meaning is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. It is produced by me, Zachary Davis, and Jack Pombriand. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org.